I do believe that when women support women, anything is possible. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom, and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Coffee Potters, this week we are celebrating women. My guest is Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. She's a non-executive director on boards like the ABC. She's a keynote speaker and MC, and she's the author of a book that is hitting stores as this podcast comes out. That is Womankind, which she's co-written with Catherine Fox, and is the story really of this Celebrating Women campaign. Now, this was an incredible viral campaign that Kirsten started on a beach in Queensland in response to her frustration at the denigration of women online and the failure to progress so many equality metrics in society. And she decided to turn it on the positive, go out and celebrate and champion amazing women. In this chat, we're going to talk all about how to raise your voice and advocate for what you believe in, how to build resilience, how it is that you can become a more inclusive leader who celebrates diversity and lives it in the way that you set up your team culture and structure. And we're also going to follow the story of the lessons learned from the incredibly powerful Celebrating Women campaign, which turned into a global phenomenon. Without further ado, here's my colleague, mentor and friend, Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. Well, Kirsten Ferguson, I am so thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. Oh, I'm really, really excited to be here. Now, you are on the verge of your first book coming out, The Story of Celebrating Women. We're going to get to the book uh, shortly, but I want to go back first to where it all started. And I was fortunate to get an advanced copy of your book. And one of the things I loved reading it uh, was the power of your early role models, your remarkable grandmother, Mary, or Millie, as you call her, your mum and dad. When you look back now and you reflect on your early influences, um, how how did they impact you and, and the way sort of you looked at the world and, and your place in it from a really young age? Yeah, well, I think um, I was really fortunate in that I grew up in what I now recognise to be a very privileged way where I was taught that girls could do anything and I genuinely believed that. There were stickers that were developed in the 80s by some government department and I remember ordering them like by the box load to give out to my friends and they said girls can do anything and I genuinely thought that was true and I was told that by my parents and by my school Uh, you mentioned my grandmother Millie I mean she was just this incredible woman who certainly did what she wanted right up until her 90s and that's how I started life out and it is amazing to me now though thinking back that I hadn't opened my eyes to the fact that not every young girl or woman can do anything in that they're not given the same opportunities and privileges but I certainly grew up in a lovely blissful place of uh, ignorance and denial and I thought this was just how it was. So talk to me at 17 you left school and made the decision to join ADFA as a cadet at a time when only about 10% of all cadets were female. What motivated that decision? Well it was a pretty transparent one. You got 
got paid to go to ADFA as a um, university student and I thought that sounded pretty darn good and <laughs> I'd always been a bit of an all or nothing student and I'd really wanted, my first choice had been law at Sydney Uni and you needed something like 99 point whatever out of 100 um, at that time and I got 96 so I didn't get enough to get into law and so then I thought right what am I going to do and uh, the military would pay you to go and become an air force officer is what I chose but any of the three services and I'd come from a military family so my father had been in the army his father had been in the army and I'm pretty sure his father as well and it uh, was something that I was really attracted to be an officer taught you really great leadership skills and I felt that you know, as a young 17, 18-year-old, it was a great way to, to gain a degree, to gain some really great leadership training and to start my career, you know, as a bit of an adventure, probably the reason people have been joining the military for, for centuries. If you were to take our listeners back, what, what was it like being a 17-year-old Air Force cadet? It was terrifying. <laughs> the first <laughs> uh, week, I was at ADFA in the early 90s. It's now been a period of time that's been under much investigation and um, government reviews and military reviews for its treatment of cadets. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, what people would know as hazing or, or bastardisation. And so that very first week when you turn up and um, you go from being a very naive 17-year-old girl who'd been at, a, at an all-girls school, in fact, to being one of only a handful of women um, at the academy was a culture shock, you know, like nothing I'd ever experienced. And you very quickly understand what it means to follow orders and um, to be yelled at and to be asked to do tasks that, you know, are pretty well impossible. So it was an amazing beginning. That said, you end up developing incredibly close friendships and relationships with your uh, classmates and colleagues and they're still my friends to this day. So while my time at ADFA, um, you know, was really tough, certainly is excellent resilience training. It's also a period I look back at quite fondly. So I was very fortunate to have had a relatively positive experience at ADFA and did really well. Um, but that wasn't the same for all cadets, male and female. And, um, you know, I look back now and I'm really pleased to see the, the changes the military have made since then. I'm interested, you touched on um, ADFA taught you a lot about leadership. When you look back on your time as a cadet, what, what are some of your key takeaways in terms of how you think it framed up the way you view leadership or what you think is important in good leaders? Well, it's interesting. Uh, when I was a third-year cadet, I was quite senior. And so then you become the one who's yelling and screaming at <laughs> younger cadets. Not only is it just exhausting having to yell and scream all the time, um, you know, obviously you engender no respect whatsoever and people are only doing what you ask because you're yelling at them and they certainly wouldn't follow you into battle. So what we were taught around leadership, both at the academy, but then also when I um, first went and served as an officer in um, a squadron in the Air Force, is much more about needing to bring people along with you. And I think 
military was often misunderstood for the stereotypes you see in the movies of the yelling and screaming. But in fact, that's not what it's about. And what I was taught as a leader in the military, which I hope has sort of stayed with me throughout, is much more about needing to communicate, you know, with your whole team, regardless of what rank they might be, because you need them um, really understanding why you're doing things and understanding what their role is in uh, whatever the task is that they might be helping you with. That applies whether you're in a war zone or whether you're in an office environment. You really need to be communicating and bringing people along with you and I think the military does an extraordinary job at training officers around that. And I imagine you know as well what an incredible opportunity to have those sorts of learning experiences so young you know I'm thinking how you're talking about you know being 17, 18, 19 and and having these opportunities to be in leadership roles as a cadet with um, you know the challenge of motivating a group of people particularly in high pressure scenarios that that's not an equivalent experience too many people in in an office based role or at university you're going to be having? No, absolutely. When I um, was in third year, I was, um, well, the most senior female cadet. So there was a thousand cadets there and um, I was in sort of this group. There was quite a strict hierarchy of cadets. They don't have it anymore, um, but they did have it then. And so I was in a very small handful of people it is. It's an incredible experience and it's taught me a huge amount about influencing others. Uh, even public speaking, as practical as that, that's certainly where I cut my teeth. And <laughs> it stays with you uh, throughout and I think it does give you that confidence and it does give you resilience because it uh, is an incredibly tough environment for men and women um, to sort of be thrown into leadership like that. And you do learn, you know, I learnt what doesn't work as well as I learnt what does. Um, and even when I left ADFRA, graduated, and I went off to an F-111 squadron when I was about 21, I was younger than, well, all of the people that I was then leading in my team. And some of the, you know, sergeants and flight sergeants or warrant officers had been in the Air Force longer than I'd been alive. <laughs> and you really need to understand leadership and how to influence those guys. And that, again, is something that stays with you as a leader throughout your career. So I'm interested on two things there. You touched on resilience and influence. I'm interested probably first on resilience. You talked about um, how you cut your teeth and built resilience uh, quite strongly during those early years. And I think that's a word we're using a lot at the moment, but sometimes without people perhaps understanding, you know, if I pragmatically want to become more resilient, what are some of the things I can do so I can cope under stress a bit more or find difficult situations easier to, to contend with? Did you learn anything practically there that you could share with listeners in terms of what you can do to to build up your stock of resilience, so to speak? Yeah, look, and I'm certainly not perfect at it. We all have um, situations that sort of knock us down and you think, gosh, am I, you know, how am I going to deal with this next challenge? But I think what I try and remind myself is that, you know, it has happened a lot. I've had some really awful things, you know, I've had to deal with in my career, going right back to being 17 and being yelled at, at the cadet, as a cadet. But, you know, none of them's ever broken me before. And each time you do learn a bit more about what you're capable of. And I think it's remembering that you have succeeded through each of those sort of curveballs you get thrown and you do become stronger each time. It doesn't mean that the next one's, you know, not going to bother you, but it does mean that, you know, how you're imagining um, a particular scenario in your mind, you know, it, it should give you no reason to think you're going to fail because you haven't yet. 
And that's sort of how I try and deal with it. But, um, you know, we're all human and different things will um, surprise us along our different journeys in life. Uh, And that's, I guess, something that you also need to just embrace rather than fear. And if you can do that and really run with it and know that in time this too shall pass and you will actually look back and have learned something from it, um, that makes it a lot easier for me anyway. I don't know if it's related, but I was really interested to learn about the responsibility you had at ADFA as burials officer, So, which was a responsibility as I understood and what you wrote about in the book to organise funeral services for men and women who died in service of our country and and to support their families. And you actually applied and were successful in getting a Churchill to go and study strategies that other countries use for supporting families of defence members who'd lost their life. I'm really interested in what you learnt during that period about how to best support people through tragedy and loss because it's it's one of sort of the pointy end of, of situations that we need resilience to um, to, to be able to find a way through. But I think it's one we often don't talk about and it's a, a struggle that so many families and no doubt so many people listening today have been through at some point in, in their journey, losing someone they've loved or going through a, a really uh, a difficult situation of grief. What did you learn on your, your Churchill study? Yeah, well, look, that all came about um, my very first day as an officer in the Air Force and I turned up at the uh, Air Force base and I'd never even heard of this idea of having a secondary duty. So in addition to my normal role, I was an administration officer, I was allocated this duty of burials officer and I'd never even, I'd been to one funeral in my life as a child and my grandfather's. And that very first day, the base chaplain came and picked me up and said, right, we've got to go and meet this family of a young airman who's just died. I was absolutely terrified. I had no idea what to say or do or how to, you know, show empathy. I mean, I was just terrified. And I remember sitting in this family's living room and they were obviously very distressed and and hearing from them and realising the power that we all have when we are supporting people in those situations. And, in fact, ended up uh, organising more than a dozen funerals and came to find it one of the most rewarding parts of my role because you can provide such support when you are the one who's not suffering from the grief but you can provide practical support in a way that really helps families when they most need it. Uh, in the last F-111 crash, and it's the last uh, aircraft crash like that Australia's had, close friends of mine were killed, the pilot and the navigator. And the pilot's wife in particular was a close friend of mine, and, or still is, and I really saw how she and the other widow really struggled with feeling that the initial support that the military provided sort of disappeared after a period of time in their mind and then during the aircraft investigation and they felt they weren't getting enough information. And in the end, they um, chose to take action against the military. And I sort of looked at that and thought, gosh, there must be a better way. Uh, And so I uh, applied and was really fortunate enough to read receive a Churchill Fellowship and went off to the Pentagon and saw how the American military treats their bereaved families and went to NASA and met with the Australian astronaut Andy Thomas to talk about the Columbia disaster and went to some American airlines and understood from them and uh, was just really fortunate to be able to put to the Australian military some recommendations. And they all related to really practical things. And so back to your question, it's around when someone's grieving, obviously being very specific um, about the support that you can provide and finding out what they need. But remembering that 
after a week or two, we tend to all go back to our normal lives, yet that is often the most painful time for those who are um, grieving. And so really practical support needs to continue for quite a period of time. Um, and I think there's much more that we can all do to remember, to check in and to not be afraid to talk about, you know, the person who may have died because quite often the person grieving desperately wants to. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really interesting and, and will no doubt help a lot of people that are in the situation of supporting others through grief. I want to talk about the book, um, Womankind, and I want to match it to your journey though because one of the things I found really interesting is sort of your reflection that you're now at a point where you're really publicly advocating for women. The Celebrating Women campaign was this incredible like, moment that just galvanized extraordinary support that started with you sitting on a beach, feeling frustrated, start of a new year, going, I want to do something. I want to try and um, unlock the power of women supporting women. But you talk about the fact that that wasn't how you felt as a cadet uh, in your early days at ADFA. That probably wasn't even where you were in the days when you were in the law firm. Can you talk us through your evolution to the point you've gotten to where you decided it's time for a Celebrating Women campaign? Yeah, absolutely, because it still surprises me (laughs) that I've written a book about um, gender and women and women supporting women and never did I think that I'd get so frustrated that I'd start or send a tweet that then led to this, you know, what became a global movement of women Mm. supporting women. Because I had started my career in the military and, you know, I fell into that classic trap of just fitting in with the guys, being one of the guys, being seen that way and succeeded and was very successful as a cadet in that environment. And I think it's, well, I certainly thought to myself at the time that it was because I didn't um, focus on my gender. And so then that continued and I went on to work in a law firm and I remember I'd run a mile if there was a a women's lunch or a women's event because I just you know that might reveal my camouflage that I'm actually a female and so I just uh, remember thinking no I just want to be known for what I do and what I deliver and the leader that I am irrespective of my gender and I hear lots of women speak that way now and I completely understand where they're coming from because we know that um, particularly if you're in the minority or if you're in a male-dominated environment and you speak up, women or others in minorities are more likely to be penalised or, or feel the effects of uh, speaking out. So it's not surprising. But uh, I think at that stage it was fair to say probably for the first 20 or more, more years of my career I was fairly oblivious to issues of gender inequality even though it was sort of looking me right in the face. Um, And so there was a big part of denial. So if I thought that, you know, there was something that had been perhaps a bit unfair or something said inappropriately or whatever, I would make an excuse in my mind that it was either that woman or myself, you know, I could have done something better to have prevented that. There was a lot of um, sort of blame on myself. But then you do start to have a bit of an awakening and there's a a board colleague uh, of mine, Holly Kramer, who talks about these stages of gender awareness and she talks about this stage of awakening where you you have got a seat at the table but you start to realise that perhaps the voices around that table aren't perceived equally or there might be networking events that are primarily driven and attended by men and and you don't even know about them. And you start to think, right, well, something's going on here that I'm just not 
really privy to. And at that time, I joined some organisations like Chief Executive Women and other women's um, networks where you start to see some of the data around uh, gender inequality and the gender pay gap and some really tangible, concrete things that made me start to really open my eyes. And it doesn't take long from there, well, it wasn't for me, to start advocating and particularly when I did so for other women. And I think as women we are particularly bad at um, advocating for ourselves, or I am anyway, um, but it's much easier when it's other women. And on this particular occasion I love social media. Um, I'm you know, always on Twitter. And if you are, you cannot help but notice the um, denigration that women face online. And on this particular occasion, there was just a thread of tweets or abuse targeted at um, Patricia Carvelis, who's a, you know, brilliant broadcaster and journalist in Melbourne. And I just had had enough. And I still remember just thinking, right, enough is enough. I just, I can't sit by and, and watch this happen. And I know if I'd been standing there and the person had said those things, you know, I would have said something or I would have called the police on some occasions. And I just <laughs> went for a walk on the beach, uh, went and bought myself a shandy. All of this is most unusual because I don't even drink very much, but I found myself in this brewery, <laughs> which is by the beach on the Sunshine Coast. Um, obviously really pissed off and annoyed at a shandy, me being the wild party animal that I am, uh, and then wrote down sort of four ideas on the back of an, uh, back of a serviette and on the way back on the beach rang my mum. And from that, having absolutely no planning, no idea where this would lead, um, Celebrating Women began. So talk to us about, uh, I mean, you have four questions that you asked and you aim to feature um, women every day for 365 days. But as you said, you, you can't fathom the momentum that this was able to get. It was certainly a campaign of its time. You know, so many, when you think about the context of Time's Up and Me Too and everything that was swirling around in the background of what you were doing, there was such a hunger to see this positive celebration of women. Talk to us about how far and, and wide this reached. What happened? Yeah, well, look, it was bizarre. It's still, I'm still pinching myself. So on that day, uh, and I'll tell you the four questions because the four questions I asked my mum that day on the beach were the same four questions that every woman who participated um, answered. So it was exactly the same format. And um, it turned out that I think just through luck or good fortune, certainly not through any strategy, those questions were really inclusive. So my mum's retired and I, the first question was, how do you describe what it is you do without using a position title? Because I genuinely just didn't know how she'd sort of work it out. Uh, so no woman was able to say, look, I'm the CEO of X. And as a result, women from all walks of life participated. We had retirees through to, um, well, we had the foreign minister involved at the time. Look, it, it was just a full spectrum. The second question was, what did you hope to do when you're at school? And um, again, I had no idea what my mum had hoped to do. The third question was three words to describe your life to date. And the last was, who do you hope to inspire and why? Now, the four questions, they're not particularly revolutionary and, you know, I wasn't asking them to write a, an essay on anything. Um, they were just really simple and um, each woman would give me in her words and I would then sort of make sure it was a, a tweetable 
sentence and I'd add a photo and it was that simple. And the very first profile I shared was mum, but I didn't tell anyone. I just said, this is Irene and told her story. And I noticed that just momentarily my Twitter news feed was positive and people seemed to like her story and she felt celebrated and I felt good about it and it went from there. And so then, as I said earlier, never one to do things by halves. <laughs> I made this incredibly bold commitment that I was going to celebrate two women. I don't even know why I could only stick with one. I went for two. Two women every single day of 2017 from all walks of life and from anywhere in the world. And by the end of the year, I had celebrated 757 women from 37 countries and they were as diverse as any group of women can be. There was absolutely no qualifying criteria. You just had to identify as a woman and we certainly celebrated transgender women as well. And I think it was um, because it was so inclusive that was some of the, the reason for its success, but it was also because... I truly believe and continue to believe that every woman is a role model and this um, campaign really showed that 757 times because the women who were profiled and, and, and these were women we just don't normally hear from and they all had incredible stories to tell. Um, they were all inspiring in their own way and in the end what the campaign taught me is that you know, we really need to forget this saying that if you should be so successful, you should drop a ladder down to help a woman up behind you. I firmly believe we need to forget the bloody ladder. The ladder will only ever help one woman at a time. And in fact, it's designed so that you hold on with both hands, blocking the way for others um, so you don't fall. So what the campaign taught me is that we can throw down a fishing net and bring up many, many women together. And we can all do that in our own way. It's just not true. And in fact, we all benefit from us all rising together. And you certainly don't need to start your own social media movement. You know, that was a little bit of extreme. <laughs> I had no idea it was going to go that way. But we can all be supporting each other in different ways every single day. And that's whether recommending women, you know, for different positions or for speaking engagements or for, you know, if they're starting a business, recommending their products, buying their products amplifying women on social media whether through likes and comments and just really simple ways that we can all be changing that tone that we see it's certainly I am not uh, naive enough to think or ever thought that celebrating women would change the online denigration of women you know I knew that that would never be something that I could tackle but what I do think and what you've alluded to is we can reframe how we deal with it and I mean I tend to be an optimist anyway so that was the way that was most comfortable for me but it has meant that social media for many people has been somewhere that um, was safe and enjoyable certainly for that period of time and what was remarkable is that celebrating women received no trolling at all and it was something I was really worried about that either I or some of the women I'd celebrated would um, receive abuse and uh, yeah someone will have to have a sort of a study of that as to why that was the case but it certainly um I think also because it was an, uh, a campaign that celebrated all women you know these were your sisters and your neighbors and your aunties and, and women that are in your life and um they all deserve celebration I love that too because it just makes you more even more encouraged to think about the positivity you create 
in every interaction you have, be it in person or in the digital world every day, to think that genuine, authentic positivity and celebration of others can not be trolled in the day and age that we're in, I actually find such a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful thing. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. That's awesome. You know, you've touched on the fact that uh, reflecting on your own journey as an advocate, how difficult sometimes it can be to step up and um, stand up against a dominant culture or a dominant subculture, be that the you know trend of trolling online, be that the circumstances you might find yourself in in the workplace. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to people, be they male or female, who are finding themselves in a situation where they're, they're not prepared to walk past behaviour that's going on around them, but they're not sure how to best step up and try and influence that for a better outcome? Yeah, look, I definitely think um, safety in numbers is a great way to start. So finding like-minded colleagues and others, or it might be your immediate boss or whoever, to go and talk with and work out how you're going to tackle this together because it's not an individual issue. If there's a a cultural or, um, or a systemic challenge that's going on in your business, then it's relevant to everyone, not just you. And you shouldn't have to feel alone in raising those challenges. And so I'm definitely someone who would suggest you go and rally your allies and think about how together, again, you can each raise that fishing net with whoever it's for, but do it for everyone because that's in then the benefit of that organization and you're learning become richer for and so tell me, what has the experience of taking Celebrating Women into a, a book been like? <laughs> it's been, uh, I mean, I, I just still can't believe it, Holly. It's still surreal that this idea on the beach last January and here I am now looking at a hard copy book that I was, I've written with Catherine Fox who, you know, I just greatly admire and we've tried to write about not only the campaign but what it's really taught us about women generally because celebrating women, I mean, it seems now really appropriate. It happened in 2017. It was such a pivotal year for women working together and particularly using social media and it was a, a small dot in the global scheme of things compared to things like Me Too and Time's Up and we certainly don't um, advocate it was anything like that but it did seem like like as you said earlier it was the right time and why is that and we look at um, the ways women are supporting women and the power of women's networks and the way male allies can um, help support women and um, the way organizations can leverage these incredibly brilliant women who are in it and working for them without needing to spend you know inordinate amounts of money on women's programs often you just need to ask the women working for you you know what will work for them so it's been a really incredible uh, experience for me and I love writing and I've always wanted to write so it's another sort of bucket list ticked off for me and I'm really excited about it but I hope others enjoy it. I have no doubt they will. I know I'm enjoying reading it. I'm about halfway through at the moment and very, very much enjoying it and I think you and Catherine have a wonderful collaborative writing style. I wanted to ask you, you said this line in the book that I really liked. You said, when women support women, you never know where it may lead. Where do you hope to see it lead in your lifetime? Oh, to full equality. I think, um, you know, I want to see... I want to see an end to the constant discussions about why women are paid less, why they are retiring with less superannuation, why our domestic violence rates are so incredibly high, why we don't have enough women leaders of uh, large companies or in politics. You know, it's just it doesn't matter where you look. You know, surfing now will have equal pay for winners of male and female surfing titles. A tiny sort of aspect of gender equality, but of each one you think, you know, finally, thank goodness for that. And I just want to see 
those kinds of um, situations rectified across the board. And I do believe that when women support women, anything is possible. And together we are strong and powerful and we understand, you know, generally where we're all coming from we're not all perfect gosh women are human we uh, make mistakes and we have different points of view and we're going to come at things differently I wanted to ask you uh, for those that are listening that are finding themselves in a leadership position who are maybe you know reflecting and going wow could there be more I could do to create a, a culture in my team in my organization that that is more embracing of diversity and inclusion what tips have you got for how they can they can show up you know tomorrow at work or show up to the meeting this afternoon differently and uh, embrace a more inclusive and diverse approach? Yeah, I definitely believe uh, firstly it's acknowledging sometimes it can be uncomfortable to know how to even approach this issue and I do write in the book about I really wanted um, lots of women of colour and Aboriginal and Indigenous women as part of celebrating women and didn't quite know how to tackle that issue um, without making it about that and I so I struggled with that and one of the ways I overcome it was just asking just stopping and asking Um, in this case it was a wonderful Aboriginal uh, woman who I celebrated about how I'm best to to tackle that and I think for leaders it's stopping and asking those in your business you know are you feeling included Um, because I firmly believe that inclusion must be the strategy so if you get inclusion right and and people who are joining you feel part of the fabric of your team or your organization then diversity will follow and that was precisely the experience that I found through celebrating women because it was so inclusive there was just nothing that would prevent any woman from participating um we ended up with an incredibly diverse range of women as part of sort of the 757 women who took part so for leaders out there I think it's recognizing it can be uncomfortable and recognizing your own blind spots so we don't you know if you're not a minority you don't realize that perhaps not all the voices are at the table looking around so we've become very good at seeing all male panels so I think it's opening your eyes asking listening and then focusing on inclusion. Now we love to leave our listeners with a a call to action here on Coffee Pods to make sure that the inspiration and the insights that they've heard uh, you share turn into some some different behavior and some new results for them so if you could leave our listeners with a call to action what would you like to encourage them to do? Well I'd like every single person who's finishing listening now to right away go and find a way to celebrate a fabulous woman that they know in whatever way makes that you know work for them might be a text tell them how great they're going might be a social media post it might be putting them forward for a job you've been thinking about but go and do something for one other one I love that I just think about the the butterfly effect of what this podcast is going to create in terms of people that are going to get wonderful texts of encouragement or new opportunities out of it that's an awesome and pragmatic uh, encouragement now for those who are wanting to connect with you who are wanting to pick up a copy of the book where can they go to um, get in touch Right. Well, I'm on social media everywhere. So just find me generally at Kirsten Ferguson. Everyone spells my name correctly. So it is K-I-R-S-T-I-N Ferguson. Um, And you can pick up a copy of Womankind in all good bookstores. Otherwise, you can order it online through Booktopia. Well, congratulations, not only on a remarkable career, um, but for what you've created with this movement. And part of what I love about you is this is such a genuine extension of everything you are in person. I am an extraordinary beneficiary of your counsel and mentorship and guidance and your generosity with 
all the women around you um, just runs deep through your veins. So it's it's wonderful to see the recognition that you're getting for the incredible positive contribution you make to the lives of so many women on a daily basis, let alone what you've done with this campaign. And, and I look forward to seeing uh, the reaction and the ripple effect that this book creates. Oh, thanks, Holly, and thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.